You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, Legal Talk Network listeners. This is producer Lawrence Coletti reporting to you about the 2015 annual Florida Bar Convention, which took place at the Boca Raton Resort and Club in Boca Raton, Florida. What you're about to hear are two panel interviews covering the convention's Florida Law Update 2015, which is a seminar presented by the General Practice Solo and Small Firm Section. It was our privilege to first welcome Mr. Dennis DeVlaming, who presented the Criminal Law Update. We now cut to Mr. DeVlaming. Uh, I started my career as a Florida prosecutor uh, 43 years ago and um, prosecuted for three years. I now have my own firm uh, with, with two other lawyers, practice criminal defense exclusively. Uh, I'm board certified. I'm also an adjunct professor at Stetson College of Law teaching advanced criminal trial advocacy. Fantastic, fantastic. So according to the literature that I have for the Florida Bar here, uh, you're at an event called the Florida Law Update 2015. It's a seminar, and you're presenting the criminal law update part of that. So if you you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about what's going on with your presentation? Sure. Uh, The bar asked me to come and give this seminar. Uh, I also give this seminar for the board certification. In other words, the lawyers that want to stay on the cutting edge, the, the very latest law that comes out in the past year year to, to um, you know, let the lawyers know exactly uh, the, the latest law to help them in their practice. So that's what I'm here. The Florida Bar asked me to do it again for them. And so the, anybody that's either in the criminal law section or interested in criminal law can hear about the latest law that came out of the district courts and the Florida Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court in the last 12 months. What are the most pertinent updates that you're presenting today? Oh, there's a lot of updates that have occurred recently out of the Florida Supreme Court. Probably some of the most recent ones are the sentencing of juveniles. There have been a lot of juveniles uh, uh, that have been sentenced uh, to life imprisonment for crimes, and the, and the United States Supreme Court has ruled that they cannot be sentenced to life imprisonment for a non-homicide offense. So these these are these cases are coming back. The juveniles are being resentenced. There are certain guidelines that the judges now have to look into to see whether or not they're uh, worthy of being released uh, early than life. Okay, so uh, life sentence, you know, of course I'm thinking uh, a homicide, murder uh, conviction, but uh, a minor, it seems to be, was this a three strikes policy or what kind of crimes were they being sent sent to prison for life for? Well, uh, probably a lot of them are uh, armed robbery, um, carries up to life imprisonment, um, sexual battery uh, with a a weapon, it carries up to life imprisonment, Uh, home invasion robbery with an assault uh, or a weapon carries up to life imprisonment. So there's quite a few offenses that they could could commit uh, that would carry up to life imprisonment. And in Florida, life is life. You cannot get out early. No parole? None. Okay. What are some of the other updates? You talked a little bit about the uh, life sentences, but what are some of the other updates coming up? Well, the updates really have to do with the the decisions that come out of the courts. Uh, The one that I just mentioned uh, is probably one of the big game changes that's going to create a lot of extra work, uh, understandably so and and reasonably so for the the, uh, defense bar. If, if you were in charge, if you were suddenly the, the legislator uh, in Florida and making some of these rules, what, what are some of the ideal changes you'd like to see coming up in 2015, 2016? Well, again, although I was a former prosecutor, I've been a, a criminal defense lawyer. The, the biggest changes that I think that the uh, bar would like to see, and, and frankly, prosecutors as well as defense lawyers, and that is getting away with some of these draconian minimum mandatory sentences for drug offenses. Um, they have now made drug trafficking so easy to get into the minimum mandatory by the number of, for example, Oxycontin pills that you can, you can possess. And someone could have 12 in their pocket 
and they're a drug trafficker, even though they didn't intend to sell them, they just wanted to use them because they're addicts, but they get stuck in, in that. So I, we hope that the uh, Florida Supreme, excuse me, the, the legislature looks at that as the uh, Congress has, the U.S. Congress have now um, uh, passed uh, laws to allow people to perhaps get their sentences reduced when they've been so uh, unfair. Okay. Well, I had a question about that. So uh, these uh, minimum mandatory sentences. So uh, you have an, an addict who's got uh, 12 Oxycontin pills in their pocket. They're walking around. They get uh, they get busted by the police. So there's no way out for an addict that, you know, be part of a program to, to get around the minimum mandatory. It's just delved out because they got caught with well, it? or Well, in all fairness, it's different throughout the state. Um, but in all fairness, where I practice law, if a person is indeed an addict, can establish and prove that they are an addict, that they have no history of selling, uh, they have no uh, nothing in their phones, nothing in their pockets indicate the number, any people that are going to be uh, potential uh, purchasers, um, they will waive. A lot of state attorneys will waive the minimum mandatory in return for them going into a drug rehab and getting and getting clean. Um, but they don't have to. And uh, it's on the basis of weight, not on the basis of whether or not they're going to sell or not. And that's the problem with the law. They just say, if you have a certain amount of grams of a certain type of drug, you are considered a drug trafficker and you can't prove otherwise. It's just weight. Wow, that sounds like uh, sounds like a good update that you're suggesting here, uh, coming up 2015, 2016, perhaps. Is there any discussion about it, or or is it just one? Of, is it sort of one of these wishful thinking items that uh, people talk about a lot? It just doesn't seem to happen. Or well, you know, it, it's one of these things that eventually uh, it comes up. It comes up. They vote it down. They vote it down. Because nobody wants to be soft on crime. No legislator wants to be soft on crime. They don't want to have the, an opponent say, you voted to put an addict back on the street or what have you. But I think it's come up so much that they're realizing the, the inequity in it. And we're starting to make progress that the bills are now starting to be uh, put by both the Senate and the House um, to take a look at, at, at these things. So will it get there? I think it will. We have to have enough with backbone that say they'll, they'll back it. So, uh, I've been hearing a little bit, we've been talking to some people at the convention here, and I've been hearing a little bit about some development in marijuana, uh, at least uh, at least when it comes to uh, the medicinal marijuana. And so, I'm, I'm, my question to you, do you think, just in your opinion, um, do you think this push, this nationwide push, state to state, to try to legalize marijuana, is that having an effect, perhaps, on some of the opinions when it comes to this mandatory sentencing? I think so. I think so. Uh, I mean, when I started practicing law, I watched a judge sentence a, a young man to three years in state prison because he had a baggie of marijuana in his pocket. He wasn't selling it. He just simply had a baggie of marijuana. We've come a long way in the last 43 years uh, in that respect. I, I think what's going to happen in Florida is the legislature is a little bit worried about the public because this is going to come up again for legalization. Uh, medicinal legalization. Uh, we, uh, it almost passed the last time. You know, we need 60%, as you know, of the population that votes to, to, to vote in favor of it. And we got like 53 or 57, or I forgot what it was, but it was high 50s. So I think they realize that the next time it's going to probably pass. If they pass it as a law, they can control it. Then that way they can change it. and they can. Uh, so I think there was some suggestion that they might want to do it themselves, so to speak, so that they have the control. Um, but it got voted down. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so 
I'm not so sure it might ultimately come to a constitutional amendment. Okay. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I, uh, I know that you have to get on to your, uh, your speaking engagement, but uh, I wanted to thank you for, uh, for contributing to our program. But I uh, had another question for you. If our listeners wanted to ask you some questions about the, the criminal law update, how can they get a hold of you? They can contact me via email is the best way, which is Dennis, D-E-N-I-S, at D-R-R, that's David Robert Robert R-R, lawfirm.com. We hope you enjoyed this part one of two panel interviews. Up next, we continue our coverage of the Florida Law Update 2015 with Mr. Kevin Johnson and Mr. Manny Farach. We now cut to Kevin Johnson. I'm a labor and employment law attorney from Tampa, Florida. I work with the law firm of Thompson, Sizemore, Gonzalez, and Hearing. We're about an 18-person employment law boutique. We're on the management side because in my field, you're either on the plaintiff side or the management side. We happen to be on the management side. So our job is to help companies and represent them, keep them out of trouble. And when they get accused of discrimination, we step in and litigate those cases. Okay. And uh, Manny? I've got a a bit of a different practice. I do both uh, real estate and business litigation, both transaction and litigation-wise. So I uh, cover sort of the waterfront when it comes to businesses and real estate. Based in West Palm Beach, Florida, a firm called Richmond Greer. We have offices in West Palm and Miami, and we're about two dozen folks. A lot of good folks. Okay. Well, I called you guys for an interview because I wanted to uh, wanted to learn a little bit more about the Florida Law Update 2015. We just uh, uh, before this interview, we had uh, Mr. Dennis Dave uh, Vlaming come on talk about the criminal case law update. And so, uh, Manny, this time we'll start with you. Uh, your presentation was real property update, where you gave us some information. So, if you could just tell us, give us like a fifty thousand foot uh, view of what that was about, and we'll get into some specifics. What I do every week is I read all the Florida cases, all the Florida appellate cases. 11th Circuit cases, United States Supreme Court cases, and what I end up doing is I produce a little weekly um, uh, blurb. It's uh, an email that goes out uh, 52 weeks a year, and uh, then I summarize those every time, uh, every year, into a good 30, 40, 50 cases. We had 52 cases this year, so it was a little tough covering that in 50 minutes, but we covered the highlights. There's... um, at a 50,000-foot level, I think the important thing to know for a lot of Florida practitioners is that um, the uh, mortgage foreclosure cases seem to be winding themselves up. The appellate cases on that seem to be winding themselves up. We still have two issues on mortgage foreclosure that are still a, a big issue. One is the business records exception to the hearsay rule, and that's been a lot of discussion because, as everybody knows, the person who's enforcing the mortgage these days is typically not the person who is the original mortgagee. It's been sold and resold numerous times. So you got to get that mortgage and that note and that payment history, or typically the lack of payment history, into evidence. And that creates a lot of issues. And that's starting to clarify more towards a common sense approach in the courts with a case called Callaway coming out of the 4th DCA. They're asking for appeal up to the Florida Supreme Court the Callaway case says that you really approach it from a common sense viewpoint. And as long as there's an element of trustworthiness, you don't have to have a slavish addiction to the parameters set forth in 9803.06. That's a really important case. Uh, Another important case, one that a lot of people aren't talking about, is a case called Marion Farms, which came out of the 5th DCA last year. That's a case, one of the few cases that's interpreted the economic loss rule and the decision we had before that called the uh, Tierra decision, which people who do commercial work 
and people who do tort work know all about. And it's a decision that said that uh, when you have a contract, the uh, economic loss rule no longer applies to exclude tort claims. And we were all wondering in the bar, how was that going to be interpreted? Marion Farms is a very important decision because it's one of the early decisions on that point. And it said, yes, you can have tort claims in conjunction with contract claims, which formerly you could not do. But more importantly, and this is the kicker for those people that follow this area of law, is that in that particular case, the contract excluded jury trials, as many contracts in Florida do. And the appellate court said, well, once, once you have the tort claim, that jury trial waiver provision is out the window. So what ends up happening is that very, very important for, con- for businesses, very important jury trial waiver provision. If you've got a tort, and of course it has to be an independent tort, uh, pursuant to Judge, Judge Justice Parente's concurrence in Tierra, but as long as you have that independent tort, you can pursue that independent tort even to the exclusion of the jury trial waiver. Very, very important decision. So th- those are probably the two biggest things that uh, came down the pike last year. Um, there's some other decisions regarding statutes of limitations in um, mortgage foreclosure cases, but those are up at the Florida Supreme Court. So that, uh, that's going to be um, decided by the Florida Supreme Court either this year or early next year. And we'll wait for those. The DCA opinions on those are important, but until the Florida Supreme Court rules, obviously we're all, we're all waiting to see what they say. Well, yeah, I just want to get back into the, the contract and tort element there, and, and it's, a, it's new to me. Uh, if you could walk us through that a little bit. So now, uh, prior, prior to the uh, decision in, in Merriam Farms, what was the law like before that? You actually have to go back to uh, prior to Tierra. Okay. And the Tierra decision was the uh, Florida Supreme Court decision that said that the economic loss rule does not necessarily apply to to um, contract cases. Okay, now walk me through that part, the economic loss rule. So walk, walk me through that. The economic loss rule is a rule that was adopted in the late 70s, early 80s by the Florida Supreme Court, grew out of the product's liability field, and it said pretty much that you can have contract and tort as the same remedy for the same incident. Okay. So you can't have two. You can't have the, the contract damages and the tort damages. And that, that principle was refined from the first case, which is called AFM, all the way through a series of cases, uh, HTP uh, Airlines, um, a whole series of cases. What was so Tierra was a very for- important decision when it came out because it said, no, we're going to take the, contra- the, the economic loss rule out of the contract world and put it back where we think it always belonged, which was the product's liability world. And so all of us who had been relying on the, um, the economic loss rule in, in a lot of our, our cases, because that's a very important case, uh, all of a sudden we were sort of scratching our heads trying to figure out what was going to happen. Merian Farms is the first DCA case in Florida that really applies, it really applies the economic loss rule exclusion as the Tierra decision set forth. Uh, we haven't had any cases since then. The federal courts have been very active on this front, but there's only been a couple of other decisions in the DCAs that deal with uh, the Tierra decision, and they've dealt with it just in passing. So Marion Farms is a very important case for people to take a look at. 
and amazingly, not, not a lot of people know about it, um, whether you're, you're enforcing contracts or you're defending against people who are trying to expand tort remedies into contract situations. It's an important decision people really need to know about. Yeah, sounds yeah. like it. Manny, I'm curious about the jury trial waiver provision. After reading that case, is there any way you could write a jury trial waiver broad enough to cover tort claims as well? I, I think there is, and, and I think you have to approach it from the perspective of, again, Justice Perriente's concurrence in um, Tierra is the important part, because Justice Perriente said in her concurrence, you still need the independent tort. So to the extent that you can contract around that risk, I think if you state that these are all contract remedies, uh, that this is all going to be very, very narrow, that's the way that you could possibly, possibly contract around it. Okay. Well, Kevin, I think we're going to turn the microphone to you. Now, you handled, uh, and thank you, Manny, that was, uh, that was great. So it sounds like uh, some uh, profound impact uh, this year. So that, that, uh, that decision came down in 2015? Uh, Marion Farms or Tierra? Marion Farms. Marion Farms came down in 2014. 2014, okay, perfect. So, uh, Kevin, we'll turn the microphone back to you. So, uh, you did a presentation, employment law updates. So, uh, give us some of the updates in employment law this year. Sure. We had a couple of good ones come out in, in our area of the world. You look to what the Supreme Court says, you look to what the administrative agencies are saying, and you look to what the legislatures are doing. And, and this year, really, the big action was with the Supreme Court and with some of the agencies. And so what we talked about was a couple of Supreme Court cases that clarified a few things. Uh, we had a Supreme Court case that came out that was Young versus United Parcel Service, which was an interesting case. It got a lot of media coverage because it involved pregnancy, uh, discrimination, and accommodation. And up until now, if you asked in a, an employment lawyer, does the Pregnancy Discrimination Act require you to accommodate, most people would have said, no, it does not. That's why we have the ADA. That's why we have the Family Medical Leave Act. You know, you get the accommodation duties for certain levels of disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act. You get leave rights under the FMLA. But just being pregnant historically did not get you any of that. All it got was it got you the right to be treated the same as all other non-pregnant employees. So the rule of thumb was always, you know, do you have to give them leave? Well, yes, if you would give somebody with a broken leg leave in that situation, then you should give leave to the pregnant person. So you're treating them the same. And what happened in Young versus you know, UPS is that employer gave leave to people who needed essentially short-term disability in a lot of different situations. It gave it to people who were out under ADA type of accommodation issues. It gave it to people who were commercial drivers who had temporarily lost their CDL and needed to be put on essentially a dust job until they could get their CDL back. And it gave it in certain other circumstances. What the plaintiff did was to come in and say, look, you're giving leave to all those other people. Why do I have to compare myself to the people who don't get those special treatment type exceptions? I want to compare myself to them. And because you're not giving me what they got, you're discriminating against me. And the Supreme Court took that up and ultimately concluded that because there were so many exceptions granted for those other reasons, that you sort of had to consider one for, for pregnancy. And that's sort of a shocking thing to people that are on the defense side, at least, because their view would be, in all those other situations, in the ADA, you're mandated by law. That's not the employer's choice to grant that accommodation. They're required by law. With, the, with like, the workers' comp light duty that people give, the employer does that because otherwise it pays a penalty in terms of wage loss benefits, and that's the way that it can avoid that. And so here the employer is basically being forced to expand its coverage 
and give more in the way of time off benefits just because other laws require it to do that. So from the employer standpoint, that came as a little bit of a shock, that case. But it's left the water muddied. I think you can see that there will be a lot of lawsuits that come forward in the future, the next five years or so, trying to sort out exactly how many accommodations you have to give or you can get away with giving before all of a sudden you have to accommodate all your pregnant employees as well. And so it's just unsettled. It makes it a little harder to provide guidance in that area. I think a lot of people will take a very conservative approach. And, you know, maybe that's a good thing in the long run, but we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. Okay. Uh, as far as uh, muddying the water, let's go through some of the issues. Uh, what's getting confusing now? I mean, so before before the Supreme Court's decision versus now, what, what's changed before, specifically? Before the Supreme Court's decision, you had pretty much a bright line. If the, if the client called you up and said, the woman's pregnant, do I need to accommodate? Do I have to give her leave that is not otherwise available to her under our policies? Let's say she's exhausted all of the leave that was available, all the paid vacation. Do I now have to give her an additional four to six weeks? Let's say it was somebody who wasn't covered by FMLA and didn't have those rights. And so you had a pretty clear answer if you were advising that employer. Now the Supreme Court has said you're going to have to look at how many other accommodations you grant. Well, there's no bright line test. You're going to have to have a lot of conversations with your employer about, okay, what have you done in similar circumstances? Are you giving people workers' comp light duty? Are you giving them light duty as an ADA accommodation? And you have to go through that comparison, and you don't have any solid answer from the Supreme Court on how many accommodations are too many before it now tips over to requiring you to provide that accommodation for the pregnant person. So it's an interesting case. You know, I, I, I can see how they got there. I don't necessarily agree with the logic or at least the lack of a clear result in terms of how you evaluate it. But that's what the employment lawyer is going to be dealing with for probably the next three to five years. Okay. But you deal with this every day. And so I, these changes now, you used to have a bright line way to make a determination, and now you have a more difficult question to answer. So right. how, how is this affecting the liability of the employer? Well, it, it just is another factor the employer has to be careful with. You know, if you're a smart employer, you have a relationship with a labor and employment lawyer, and you call them before you make the decision. That's the nice thing about our area of practice is, unlike the car crash lawyers, hopefully our clients call us first, and we can tell them where to crash the car, or at least where you'll have the, the least amount of liability or risk if you do it. And so you try to help them make good reasoned decisions and treat people fairly because that's the best thing you can do to, to have a defensible case down the road. So this adds another layer to it, and you have to be thinking about that when that client calls you up and says, what do I do? You now have to remember this additional component, and you have to be prepared for that. But that's, that's what goes into advising clients in the employment law world is, is cases like that. People may also have heard about the hijab case that came out of the Supreme Court. It was EEOC versus Abercrombie and Fitch, and it was an applicant who walked in to apply, and she was a Muslim woman. She was wearing the Muslim headdress, and the employer sort of said to itself, well, we don't think she's going to match our look policy because Abercrombie and Fitch is famous for having a very defined look that they were going for. And the woman never said anything about needing accommodation. She never said she was Muslim. And so the employer then got sued and argued, well, we had no knowledge that she was Muslim. We had no knowledge that she would need an accommodation. So how can we be guilty of discrimination? And the Supreme Court, from the sounds of it, just sort of looked at the lawyers when they got there and said, are you kidding? You know, that's, that's the way the opinion reads, is that you do not actually have to have actual knowledge if it's pretty obvious from the circumstances that you made a judgment and you made what amounts to a discriminatory decision. The Supreme Court said the focus is always on the motive, not necessarily on the knowledge. If it's a case like a retaliation case, that answer might be different because obviously you cannot retaliate against somebody if you've never known that they've complained. But when someone walks in wearing a headdress and you're thinking to yourself, I might have to give them an accommodation and I don't want to do that, Obviously, that would be a problem if you were to make the decision based on that. 
So another interesting case. You mentioned something about agencies. There's been some uh, changes in agency law. There have. And the, the, the real action there has been with the National Labor Relations Board, which is the board that oversees private sector union law. And that traditionally has been on the decline. Union membership in the private sector is now well below 10%. But this current administration and its board are very focused on trying to pump that up, help unions organize, and, and trying to create conditions that are conducive to more unions. And so they've issued some guidelines that apply even to non-union employers. Most of us think, you know, I'm a non-union workplace. Why do I have to worry about what the NLRB says? What they've done is they've put out a guidance report and there's actually three of these guidance memos from the general counsel that are saying you have to, even in a private sector, non-union workplace, be concerned about what goes in your policy manual, okay? Because if you put the wrong stuff in there, it might chill what are called Section 7 rights. And those are the rights of employees to talk about among themselves about issues that are related to terms and conditions of employment as sort of a precursor to organizing. And so most of us would think nothing of getting a handbook from a client that has a provision in it that says, you know, you must act courteously to your fellow employees, you should show respect to everyone you deal with at all times, and you should be a good representative of the company, and you should not use profanity. And the NLRB guidance memo suggests that all of those could be violations of an employee's Section 7 rights. And so it's a shock when you have to advise a client that I'm going to have to rewrite this. You may not just be able to say that, okay, you have to be respectful which we would all think is a very normal thing to say. And the reason for that is that they would say that oftentimes when employees are protesting or they're, they're reacting to the employer's decisions, they may get heated, they may let fly some curse words, they may do some things that aren't respectful, but those are protected nonetheless by the act. What it is really is it's the NLRB asserting a very powerful role in the private sector workplace, in non-union workplaces that they've never historically done. And that, that's definitely a change. We're not used to seeing that. And they are taking this and basically assuming the worst possible outcome in any of these cases. They're saying, well, there's a small chance that somebody somewhere might think that they couldn't act against the boss or they couldn't talk about the terms and conditions of employment. And based on that small chance, you shouldn't put it in your handbook at all. And if you do, and if you fire somebody for violating that rule, even if they were not firing it for a union-related reason, even if that's why they weren't, not why they were violating it, they still have the right to get reinstated. So it's a very wide-ranging decision. Let me ask you another question for those of us who are less familiar with this. So where does that authority come from to make those changes? To Because it seems like they are encroaching into the private sector here. Where do they get that authority? Well, it's interesting because what it is is it's sort of a guidance memo. It doesn't have the force of law. It's just saying how the general counsel is going to advise the different field offices to interpret those cases. And so it's basically the agency taking an internal position on how aggressive they're going to be. And they get a lot of freedom to do that. They're tasked with working in that area. And really the only effective way to change that is to have Congress put pressure on them. And so you'll see that there have been several congressional hearings recently asking the, the NLRB to explain itself because it has taken some very aggressive positions on short turnaround elections, things like that, where they're, they're changing settled precedent. And that's the history of the NLRA. Okay, it goes back and forth depending on who's in power, the Democrats and the Republicans. The difference this time is I think a lot of employment lawyers would say the swing towards the Democratic side has been more extreme, has been more pronounced, and they're going beyond the usual boundaries. It's like the river you know, normally wanders a little bit in the channel, but a lot of people would say it's way out of the channel now with some of these things. And of course, the NLRB would tell you otherwise. Okay? They would say that this is just well within the boundaries of what we've always done. And that's just a difference of opinion that you'll see depending on which side of the fence you sit on. 
Okay, I have one last question for the both of you, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Now, both of you have seen a lot of changes in your area of law that you practiced in this year. It sounds like very active years. And so if you were in charge, you could legislate a new policy or work for an agency or set a new law, what would it be in your respective fields? And so, Manny, I want to turn the microphone back to you. You've been quiet for a bit. So what would you change in your field? In, uh, in terms of the law right now, you know, there's, uh, there's one decision that came down that needs a lot of clarity. Um, it's called J. Milton Dadeland, and uh, it permitted commercial brokers to file claims of lien against real property uh, prior to a closing uh, for commissions. In other words, I have a commission dispute, I haven't been paid, uh, I want to I wanna be paid my commission, so instead of filing a claim of lien against the proceeds, which is what the Florida Lien Act says you can do, the uh, J. Milton Dadeland opinion said you can file a claim of lien against the real property itself. And this, this is, it's, it's like a nuclear war in terms of real estate closings. Because what ends up happening, if they file that claim of lien just before the closing, all hell breaks loose. The seller has signed a contract saying, I'm going to deliver title free and clear of all claims of liens. And of course, they're violating that, that contract by doing that. The bank wants clear title, and they're going to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to lend the money if there's a claim of lien out there. And by law, the title insurance company has to insure what's called the gap, which is the time period between the title commitment and the closing. So they are on the hook for that. That decision, although it's probably right on the law, the law probably need, needs to be clarified to say that you can't file those claims of liens at all. It's, it's, uh, it's got a, a lot of folks worried. And Kevin Johnson, same question. What would I change? I've got one pet peeve, and this has to do with a law that we see a lot of action on, particularly in Florida, and it's the Fair Labor Standards Act. It's a law that governs minimum wages and overtime. And in Florida, we've been sort of one of the nation's leaders in having a ton of those claims. There's something like 3,000 that were filed in our jurisdiction just last year in the federal courts, which is way beyond the proportion that you would expect for our population. And what happens is in those cases, people come in and make the claim that either they worked off the clock or they were paid a salary, and they shouldn't have been paid a salary because they were truly a non-exempt worker. And usually it's a small technical violation. It's a very hard law to comply with. And usually what's happened is you've got an unsophisticated defendant that has been out of whack for whatever reason, and they get dragged into the system. They pay a ton of attorney's fees trying to settle these things. They're very hard to settle because they require court supervision. There's a lot of debate about exactly how much court supervision is required to settle one. And so you've got a lot of small employers that are losing a lot of time and money getting involved in things where they just didn't know any better. And I think that law needs a safe harbor. And I think what it needs to have is a provision that says before you can file one of these claims, you have to put the employer on notice. You have to tell the employer what the amount of the claim is. And the employer then has to be given a set amount of time. Maybe it's 15 days, maybe it's 30 days, in which they can get legal counsel and they can figure out whether they should go ahead and, and pay that claim. Now, historically, the reason that the law is written the way it is, which is that you have to pay liquidated damages on top of the regular damages, is because you don't want employers to take the risk and just say, I'm going to take a chance, and if I'm wrong, so what? I'll just pay the damages down the road, as, and I get the time value of the money. In this case, I think you'd still have to have some penalty component to it, but instead of paying double damages, make it like 1.5 times the damages. And then if you as an employer say, no, I want to take my chances, I think I did it right, fine, have at it, go file the lawsuit, go litigate, and if the employer loses, then it pays double damages. But I think so many lawsuits could be kept out of the courts, 
we can free our courts up of a lot of useless litigation. Uh, not useless, but a lot of litigation that takes up a lot of judicial time that doesn't end up actually going to trial. Okay, and I think the courts get frustrated by that. So that would be my fix. Well, this has been a very informative show, and unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time here uh, together. But uh, I want to invite both of you to share some information as far as contacting you. If uh, there's uh, someone out there listening that thinks they need to talk to you about a legal situation that they're in, or if they want to contact you further about what you presented today at the seminar, how can they get a hold of you? And uh, Mandy, we'll start with you. The best way to reach me is by email, and my email address is amfarach, F-A-R-A-C-H, at Richmond. R-I-C-H-M-A-N Greer G-R-E-E-R dot com and of course I'm on the Florida Bar website as well okay and Kevin I'm the same you need to reach me by email that's probably the best way and my email address is K Johnson J-O-H-N-S-O-N at T-S-G-H L-A-W dot com we hope you enjoyed this series of panel interviews as much as we had recording them this has been another edition of Special Reports until next time thank you for listening The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.